The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. God's purpose in your trials. Let me read James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, or reckon it to be all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing, this is the reason why you should count it as joy, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, but you must let endurance finish its work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So James is is a difficult book to understand in some ways, but that's not really the problem with it. The problem is, is it's hard it's hard to take because it speaks right to your heart. It John is in my face when I read it from start to finish. He looks into your heart, he sees a bottomless pit of evil and pride and prejudice and self-righteousness and hypocrisy and things like that and deceit. He targets my cold, deliberate sins of the Spirit and and delivers his message with lethal accuracy. The way that Howard Hendricks puts it in his little commentary on James is, is this. He says, James doesn't strafe the deck. He drops the bomb right down the funnel and blows us apart. James is a letter written by a pastor to a flock that has been scattered because of persecution and hard times. These are Jewish people primarily. They were some of the Jewish people who followed Christ because the majority of them rejected him. And James, of course, is the is the physical brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus. And so he is writing this to us about why God uses trials in our life. When he describes himself here in verse 1, to whom he writes, and this is what he says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Now, the 12 tribes is obviously talking about the Jewish people, and most of the Jewish people had rejected Christ. He, he came into his own place, and his own people did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. That's what the text says in uh, John that he came to his own, what was belonged to him, which was the, the creation itself, and his own people did not receive him. And this was really the testimony of the Pharisees. They didn't receive Jesus. They didn't think he was the Messiah. They didn't think he met the requirements of being the Messiah. And so they rejected him as the Messiah. On the other hand, the followers of Jesus saw all kinds of proof that he was the Messiah, exactly who he said. And so this book is written by a pastor to a flock that has been scattered because of persecution and hard times. What had happened was these Jewish Christians were persecuted by their fellow Jews because they followed Jesus and they saw him as the Messiah. The result was they were tempted to allow circumstances to shape their lives because it, like what we are going through today, it was a very difficult situation they were facing and it was an excuse for the idols of the heart from which they seek to draw life. The letter is like a surgeon's knife cutting deep and cleansing pockets of infection so that there can be healing and wholeness. James is about wholeness, the cure for hypocrisy and skin-deep Christianity, which is shallow Christianity. Holiness through and through is what James is all about. He wants to see believers grow in belief in their, in their confidence in Christ and character and action. 
And so this is what he's talking about. He's a bondservant. He calls himself a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you think, well, wait a minute. This is James, the brother of Jesus and the senior pastor of the church in Jerusalem. This was the first church that came into existence, and he's the senior pastor. He was one who the Lord used to guide the church in Jerusalem through her formative stages with profound wisdom and practical insights. According to Acts 15, James' wisdom carried the day. When the believers met about the life of the church, he spoke in a way that everybody listened. Yet he describes himself as a bondservant. The primary focus of a bondservant is obedience to his Lord. This is who he sees himself as being, one who is must be obedient to his Lord. And he describes himself in this way. Obedience is essential for teachers, and here's why. It's the basis of spiritual insight and understanding. Listen to this. This is John chapter 7, verse 17. John says, if anyone is willing to do his will, he will know the teaching. And what he means by that, that's the validation of the teaching. If you want to do the will of God, when you hear it, you will know it. And this is the, was true of James. He understood what the will of God was because he was a follower of Jesus Christ, and he was willing to do the will of God in Jesus Christ. And so when he heard it, he knew what it was. It's the foundation of spiritual authority. Authority is not won by education or personality or intellect or experience or promotion, but by the will to obey Jesus. If I do not do my Father's will, Jesus said, if I don't do my Father's deeds, don't believe me. That's John 10, 37. So Jesus said, if you don't see me doing what the Father told me to do, then don't believe me. It sounds like pure folly to ignore our own inner life while instructing and giving counsel to others. That's what it would be like to be a pastor and not obey the commands of God, because we have been called to be examples to the flock. Take heed to yourselves and then to your teaching, Paul said. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll be, you will see clearly so you can take the speck out of your brother's eye. In other words, he says, you have to deal with yourself first, and then you'll be able to deal with others. James knows that it's not his physical relationship to Jesus. He is a half-brother of Jesus. But he knows this is not what really makes the difference that gives him authority. It is his spiritual relationship to Christ as a bondservant. A bondservant is one who says, whatever he commands, I will do. The recipients were the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. They are what's called the diaspora. They were scattered like seed that is sown, and it always produces a crop. This points to the true nature of the church. It's a scattered assembly. It's like having been sown into the earth, and it's going to grow. So the first issue he deals with is, in this pastoral letter, is encouraging them to see their trials as an opportunity to pursue wholeness. And that's what he says. In fact, if you notice again in these first four verses, this is what he's talking about. He says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings, considered all joy. That means count it to be that. Not that you feel it, but that you know it is true. It's joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that this is why you it's joy, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. In other words, it is difficulties and hardships that bring growth to the life of the believer. And he says, but you must let endurance have its perfect work, which means you must let endurance finish its work, and and, uh, it will produce wonderful changes in your life. So God's purpose 
was to reveal their faith. That's what this word means. He's talking about revealing the true nature of the faith that they have, first of all. That's the hardest part about trials. The hardest part about trials is seeing the truth about my faith. When we go through difficult times and I see how shallow I can be. And so he says, when you encounter these things, and the word encounter means when you fall into them, peripipto. It's referring to a man who's walking and he's surrounded by thieves on all sides. There's no way of escape. And yet he falls into problems, real significant problems. If you've ever saw Jurassic Park 3, you remember the raptors and how they found themselves right in the midst of these killers. What's happening to these people is they're going through trials. And the word trials, pyrazo, and it, was, uh, it meant that it could, it could stand heat. And that's what he's talking about. And he's talking about going through times when we are being purified through the heat that we go through. And the worst part about it is right away, it's what is revealed. Our faith is tested, and it's revealed to us what the true condition of our faith is. And um, in verse 2, the meaning's clear he's, of this word trial. The context that he uses is clear. Believers run the risk of suddenly being surrounded by trials which have as their purpose the testing of our faith. And we need to endure these testing. We can't just run from it. We can't change the subject. We have to live through it. James makes it clear God is never involved in the negative sense of solicitation to evil. He never tests us to tempt us to sin. But God does allow his people to be tested as to their faith. But he does not allure them to evil. God's purpose in your trials is, first of all, to reveal the true nature of your faith, and often, as I said, that's the most painful part of it. And he says, these trials are various or variegated. That is, they come in all kinds of shape and, and color. It uses a word there for variegated, which means many colored. It's a word that was used of Joseph's multicolored coat. What were the trials they were facing? We can imagine what they were. We're not told exactly what they were, but they were, were told in the letter that they experienced poverty and the letters filled with references about poverty and wealth. At least as a majority of the readers are poor. That's the idea. And so they were being persecuted because they were followers of Christ. They were being persecuted by their own people because the Jews did not believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so those who were following him were experiencing the pressure of the, the enemies of the gospel and the enemies of those who believed the gospel. And they were rich people. They were slandering the name of Christ and exploiting the Christians and dragging them into court, we're told. In chapter 5 of the first six verses, he talks about the rich killing the righteous by holding wages away from them. Now, the situation is that wealthy Jews found the reader's commitment to Jesus as contributing to their poverty, as well as was their situation as exiles. They were having a hard time, and those who hired them felt like it was right for them to give them a bad time and withhold their wages and so forth, and forcing them to do very strange situations. Their trials were more than merely religious persecution. It was persecution that really affected them in all parts of their life. Now, what James says about trials includes the many kinds of testing that we as Christians undergo in the fallen world. Sickness, abandonment, loneliness, bereavement, disappointment, financial hardship. Our responsibility is to rejoice. That is to rejoice thoughtfully. We are to count it or consider it all joy. Those are inspiring words, but you know how it is with words. The cleanliness of theory is often ruined by the mess of reality. 
But these were told that they should, when they were going through difficult times, is to count it to be a joy because it was a good work of God. He was, he was working in their life. And so that's what he's talking about. He says, consider it, deem it to be true that this is joyful because it's God working on the lives of his people. And so this is a life-dominating assumption that we are to have. We are to count it to be as something good when we go through difficult trials, not because trials are good in themselves, but because trials are God's way of working in our life and purifying our faith and making it what it ought to be. The conscious acceptance of a definite inner attitude is what he's talking about. I have to have this attitude that I reckon trials to be joy because they are God's means of changing me. It's like being in the school of discipleship. It's more than just knowing something is true. It's evaluating life's events based upon this life-dominating assumption. If this is what's going on when we go through trials, we need to have joy when we think about it. The NIV translates this pure joy, but the idea is really more suggestive of intensity, complete and unmixed joy, rather than exclusivity, nothing but joy. There may be sadness and fear and perplexity, but there should always be thoughtful joy. His point is that trials should be an occasion for genuine rejoicing. And the reason is, he's going to explain in the next couple of verses, verses 3 and 4, uh, it's, he's not talking about the joy of the trial that we love to go through difficult times. He's not saying you should feel this to be all joy. He's not saying that. Trials are not joy. It's not mind over matter. The Stoics gained self-control, and you can ignore pain, and they did it by ignoring pain. The Epicureans never let anyone get so close to them that they, losing them would really hurt them. But God's purpose, to refine your faith, testing your faith, and it's the word dokimion, which means it's a rare Greek word, but it has the idea of refining gold or silver. How was gold and silver refined? Well, you would take a gold ore and you would put it over fire, and when it melted, the impurities would be removed. And this is what he's talking about. It's these trials work out to achieve something important. And our responsibility is to remember what do I mean? By knowing something, I need to know, which is a causal participle. It's telling us this is what we ought to do because you know, he says, it's, it's pure joy. It's joy to go through trials because we understand the reason and purpose for them. So God's purpose is to perfect your faith or to refine your faith so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's very positive. The idea of perfect is one of James's favorite words. It's not absolute perfection, but the ethical character of a mature believer, that which has attained its proper goal. Maturity is the opposite of babyhood. It's full development. You come to real maturity. And so maturity is the opposite of babyhood, full development. And so he says, this is what's going to happen to us. We're going to experience complete or full sanctification. Our faith is going to be refined, and what is left is real faith. And uh, this is what he said should characterize the mature believer. God wants you well-rounded. That's what he talks about in 1 Timothy and Titus, that our faith should be well-rounded. And the only way it's going to happen is through trials, through going through God-ordained trials to refine our faith. Now, the negative thing here is that what he wants us to be is lacking in nothing. The idea leaves no loopholes. He wants us to grow so that we don't lack in any good thing. James is describing the beauty of holiness, or wholeness, if you prefer. 
not wanting to produce fusty, finger-wagging prigs who are good in the worst sense of the word, men and women with sullen, morose faces, full of rectitude and rigid duty, on hold for the next life. True holiness is more than being decent or good or ethical or upright. The psalmist says we should worship God in the beauty of holiness. What Paul has in mind is what he calls to adorn the gospel. We adorn the gospel by living according to the gospel. And uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, it says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, that is, unbelievers, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Something beautiful to see is what he is saying. James draws a picture of holiness in this book that fascinates us and awakens us to the hope that we can be more than we have ever hoped to be, that we can live lives of uncommon beauty and grace. It can happen as we humbly receive it. God is committed to making you beautiful. That's what Psalm 149.4 says. But it's not talking about physical beauty. It's talking about the beauty of holiness, the beauty of being totally committed to the living God and being changed by these trials into people who have real deep and profound faith in the living God. This is the kind of holiness that God uses to draw people to himself. Holiness is wholeness, or not weirdness, James does not allow us to be self-righteous, rigid, loveless, humorless folk who never crack a smile, who, who can't even enjoy a joke. There's a book written by a man named Anthony Trelope. He has a character in this book. Her name is Miss Thorne. This is what he says about her. Her virtues are too numerous to describe and not sufficiently interesting to deserve description. In other words, he says, oh, she has a lot of qualities that are just not significant. What we are receiving in the refining of our faith is what's really important, what has real value in our lives, that we become people of faith, and it shows in all kinds of ways. So our responsibility is real simple. Our responsibility is remain. Let us endure. And he he basically is saying, let the work of endurance finish. Let endurance finish its work in our lives. When believers respond to trials with confidence in God and determination to endure, They move toward a wholeness of Christian character that is beautiful in the sight of God and man. This concern for spiritual integrity and wholeness lies at the heart of James' concern. And we'll come back to that matter over and over again throughout this book as we go through it. And uh, we are going to look at this book as we uh, continue in our path. We're going to look through the book of John, and then we will also go through the book of James and trials, because trials are a major part of the Christian life. And it's really important that we understand trials. We understand what God is up to, what he's doing, and what he's wanting to produce in us. That's, this is the reason why he allows uh, trials. I once had a young man ask me, because things were going really bad for him, and he asked me, why is God allowing this? Why is God allowing this? Have you ever asked that? Well, the reason that God allows trials is to refine our faith so that our faith is more pure and more powerful than it's ever been. And so he says, when you encounter these things, when you fall into these things, you need to understand that God has a purpose and a plan. Purpose and plan is to refine our faith. It is to refine it just like you would refine gold or silver so that its value comes out, its value is seen in the life of the person who has refined faith. And this is why this is an important topic for us in the book of James, that God is up to something wonderful, and he wants to produce in you something that's beautiful, he calls. 
he calls it, beautiful. That, that faith that really trusts in the living God through difficult times is beautiful. And so this is what we'll be looking at as we trace this through the, the testimony of Scripture, why we, are, why we experience these times when God is refining our faith and why it's so good and why we should think it as something that's characterized by joy because it produces joyful results. So this is what he's doing. And he want, God wants to reveal your faith. When you encounter various trials, means when you fall into various trials, you need to understand that God is up to something good. He's going to produce something that you're going to enjoy, you're going to see as valuable. And instead of running from it, we are to abide under it and trust him and rest in him and let endurance have its perfect result. And so as we pray together this morning, I'm praying that God would give you a hunger for his work in your life, even in the midst of trials and troubling times. Let me pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. You have blessed our lives so many ways. You have given us so many benefits. But we do understand that these benefits also include trials and difficulties and hard times because you have a good purpose in mind. And we thank you for that. We thank you that you love us and that you're willing even to use difficult things in our lives to produce great and glorious effects that are beautiful in our lives to us and to others as well. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.